the history and theology of social justice. That is the topic of today's ReChurch. Welcome to ReChurch. I'm Marshall Fant, the Director of Church Consulting and Strategic Planning for Gospel Fellowship Association Missions. My purpose is to encourage pastors and church leaders as you refocus, renew, and revitalize your churches. We've established this podcast to offer practical tips and suggestions as you equip disciples to make disciples. This is Marshall Fant with GFA Missions. Appreciate GFA sponsoring this podcast. Today we'll be talking about the social justice issue, the history and the theology. Before we get into that, I wanted to make you all aware of the GFA Roundtable we're having, the Missions Roundtable. It's a virtual roundtable. It'll start September 26 and go once a month. On September, we're focusing on the topic of, really, we're all debtors to the gospel. We need to communicate the gospel. The topic will be privileged by grace, debtors to the lost. Please find information at this and register and reserve your place online at gfamissions.org slash roundtables. Today, I have the great privilege of having two friends as we're going to talk about a topic of social justice. So first, uh, Dr. Ken Casillas, thank you for joining us. And you are pastor of Cleveland Park Bible Church. That's right as well as you teach at Bob Jones University Seminary. Yes, sir. And then Pastor Brent Cook, Dr. Brent Cook, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. And Pastor Cook also teaches at the seminary and also pastors at the University of Baptist Church in Clemson. So the reason I wanted these two men for this discussion was twofold. Number one, I know them well. I know how they handle the Word of God. But number two, also they pastor in university towns, which may have a more progressive thinking in this line of social justice. And so not only how do we look at it, but how does it affect our church? And we'll get to that at the end. So both these men are uniquely gifted in this area. So first we're going to start, uh, Dr. Cook has a PhD in church history. So we'll look at the history. So Brent, if you would just run to that a little bit. So social justice, the history, our country with us. Sure. I think a lot of times we think of this as sort of a modern issue that maybe erupted in the 60s or afterwards. Well, some people just think maybe two years ago. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But this is an issue that has a very, very long history in our country. And I think the church needs to understand it. The church needs to understand, in many cases, the culpability of the church. All right, can we define social justice first? I should have done that. Well, well, (laughs) I was going to leave that for Ken. (laughs) (laughs) Ken, you want to jump in? Sure, sure. Well, the idea of justice is one of the things I think of is in Genesis where Abraham says to the Lord, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Okay. And so it's the idea of treating people fairly or a little bit more precise, giving them what they deserve or giving them their due. And that happens on all kinds of levels or should be happening. Social justice in a general sense is setting up society so that happens on a wide scale or with reference to groups that exist within society. Okay. So in a general sense, it's it's not a bad term, and it is reflecting something that the Bible teaches. But in our day, it's come to be associated with so much other baggage, okay. uh, ideologically, politically, that you have to get into that if you're going to use that term as such to try to distinguish it from other movements out there. Good. Okay. Dr. Cook, back to you. Right. So from the very beginning, you think about the colonists coming over, the pilgrims. This is the year 2020, so this is the 400th anniversary of the pilgrims. 
And from the very beginning, there was not a lot of clear thinking about the relationship between the Europeans that were coming over and the Native Americans who were already here. And things degenerated very quickly. We think about the first Thanksgiving, and we think about the relationship between the Pilgrims and the Native Americans. Most people know nothing about King Philip's War. King Philip's War was the most deadly war per capita in American history. It led to the widespread extermination of the Indian tribes, the Wampanoags and Narragansetts and others in New England. In many cases, the Puritans were going to war with the Indians. And there was tension in the Puritan community, in the Pilgrim community, over the relationship that they had with the indigenous people. And a lot of this was caused by theology. On the, one way. Yeah, well, on the one hand, you had, you had individuals like John Eliot or Roger Williams, and they took very seriously the notion that these Indians, these natives are created in God's image. They have rights. They have rights to their lands. We need to purchase lands from the Indians. We need to treat them with respect, with dignity. We need to bring them into our churches. On the other hand, there was a segment within Puritanism that looked at America as, as the new Canaan. It's the new world. It's the promised land that God has given to the new Israel. And, and they, they viewed themselves in England as the church, uh, as Israel, English Israel, as they called it. And we're going to go over this new world, and we're essentially Joshua. And we have a mm-hmm. right to go in and exterminate the Canaanites, the Amalekites. And so you have this conflict, you know, between those who think we need to look at this new world as an opportunity for evangelism and yeah. those who look at it as an opportunity for exploitation. Right. And so... My, my point is that there's, we, we can't just say this is a societal issue. This has been a church issue from the beginning. Okay. And if you can fast forward maybe to the Second Great Awakening in America, the Second Great Awakening just follows right on the heels of the American Revolution. All right, so give us a time frame for those who are not familiar with the Great Awakening. What years are we in now? Yeah, well, First Great Awakening, roughly early 1730, 1734, Jonathan Edwards sees an awakening yeah. at Northampton, runs into the 1740s. There's a decline, 1776, of course, American Revolution. And then you begin to see these rumblings of an awakening in the late 1700s, 1790s. But really, the awakening proper runs from about 1801 to about 1840, somewhere in there. And you have this new nation. And there are many people that are involved in politics, are involved in setting up churches. You have the missions movement beginning. Adam Judson comes out of this period. You've got the Western movement in America. But there's this nagging question, that is, you have all these Native Americans, and what do we do with them? And then you have a second question, and that is the slave question. What do we do with these slaves? And the church, again, is divided on this. You have some in the church that are saying the Indians have a right to their land. They can't be dispossessed. We have to treat them as, as human beings in the image of God. And you have others that are saying, no, the Lord has given us that land. We can move in. We can displace them. We can send them off to Oklahoma. You look at a guy like Jeremiah Everts who was the most outspoken critic of uh, Andrew Jackson and his Indian removal policies. You've got that on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand, you have churches in Virginia, churches here in South Carolina that are looking at the whole slave question. And they're saying, well, we should evangelize them, but evangelizing them doesn't mean they get their freedom. Okay. There's a huge question over baptism. If you baptize a slave, does that entitle him to freedom? Mm. Uh, or can he remain in bondage uh, even within the church? And the Virginia Assembly actually said, yeah, you can have them baptized, but they remain slaves. So there's conflict, right. in the, not just in the nation at large, but all the way down the church yeah. over these issues. 
And so we don't want to think that this is some sort of national issue that we face in the last 20, 30 years on a political level. It really has involved the church, I think, from the very beginning of our history. And really, most people, I mean, probably never heard of this until the last five years. Right. Until it became a political issue. Right. But you give us a great history. So what else in the history of this do we need to know about? This is not new. Yeah. The church has been involved in this issue for some time. Right. I think it's important when you approach a brother or sister in Christ or somebody who's not a believer but is a different race than you are, to just know that they have a they may have a very different perspective on mm-hmm. American history than we do, than, than you might have been taught. Uh, for instance, I have a sister-in-law who's African-American and just, just kind and compassionate, gentle, not a mean bone in her body, not a spiteful person. I mean, just, just a wonderful Christian uh, woman. And uh, I was having a conversation with her some time back, and we were talking about American history. And she made the comment, she said, you know, American history really for me begins about 1960. Mm. Which I correlates. Said, well, with, with, with Martin Luther right, King exactly. and the end of segregation and so forth. She said that's, that's really when the American freedoms that we value and we appreciate uh, really are, are become applicable to me as a black person. And she doesn't say this with a mean bone in her body. I mean, right. she's not aggressive or angry. But that's she the way just, she that's, sees it. That's just her yeah. reality. That's yeah. where she lives. Or if you look at you look at these issues from a Native American perspective, it's just fascinating to th- look at history through their eyes and the history that we were taught and with Christian compassion say, what does this look like to them? So, mm. for instance, we've all heard of the Louisiana Purchase, right. you know, so... Jefferson goes and he buys 25% of the continental U.S. from the French. Well, from a Native American perspective, that's really odd. Hmm. That's like Canada buying 25% of the U.S. today from China. Hmm. Well, why would you pay China for land right. that we live on? Right. So just trying to, to have more compassion from people of, of a different race that are going to look at our history and see hmm. things differently... Uh, to read Pilgrim sources, Puritan sources through Indian eyes, to read American sources through black eyes. I think yeah. the church has to do this. We can't turn the clock back, right. but I think we really can develop sympathy. We have to as believers. All right, so that's the historical side. Right. Dr. Casillas can inform us the theology, and you're really an Old Testament. Right, you know. right. Yeah, Old Testament is what I concentrate on, and I recognize there's a big distinction that has to be made between Israel and the church. And we also have to keep clear that the New Testament church's mission, as stated in the New Testament, is not a matter of political agendas or transforming society through those kinds of structures or the church corporately being involved in those kinds of structures. That's true. That has to be upheld in more recent American history. The social gospel has wreaked havoc in so many churches. You want to define that, the social gospel for our listeners? Sure. And Brent would know the history a lot better than I would, but it's basically the idea of the church taking on a social role to the great diminishing of our mission of proclaiming the gospel itself and making disciples and maturing disciples. And the mission getting we would say watered down away from the core uh, to these physical material political issues and so that is a real problem and we have to stay on guard against it history shows that if we're not very protective of the mission it very easily could go that way but what happens I think with us as conservatives is that 
we tend to focus so much on that that we miss a whole other stream mm. of biblical emphasis just about the kind of society that pleases God and the kind of people that we ought to be in mm. society and the ways that the church at least should be teaching their people to be and to live out in the world. And a lot of that does come from the Old Testament, even though it's, it's uh, connected to material that mostly has to do with Israel. We see that there are transcendent values that the Lord lifts up as things that he desires. Right. You know? So you, you look at the Old Testament, and even before you start talking about Israel, you know, you've got a guy like Job, for example. And when his friends are attacking him, right. or when, when he is defending himself as somebody who fears God and is not guilty of some sin that, you know, that's brought this judgment on him, most of what is being said there is about his relationship with other people, mm. how he treats the disadvantaged, his integrity in his dealings. Mm. And, and this is presented in a positive light in the book of Job as a huge part of his testimony that here's a man who pursued justice in the sense of uh, not taking advantage of people and even looking for ways to deliver people who were vulnerable, who were being oppressed. And I think that lays a foundation. In fact, there's a statement, even when he is talking about a form of slavery that existed back then, different from the modern slavery that was based on kidnapping and and racism, he talks about his treatment of slaves Hmm. in terms of justice. And he says, how could I do anything else when, when God made us both? And we're at the same level before our maker, ultimately. So he had some notion of the image of God in man and the right, application so of that. The context of Job, one of the oldest writings we have, right? Well, I would, I would tend to think the book itself was probably written in the time of Solomon. But there are okay. great reasons to think that the story happened much earlier, like during the time of Abraham. All right. So, 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 so that so goes way back before again. the law. Right. right. That goes that's way back before the law. Right. right. And that's the point. Here's a man who's a quote-unquote Gentile. We, you know, from our standpoint, we, we might call him that. And yet he has, you know, how did he know these things? From his conscience, from maybe revelation that we don't know about, from just uh, teaching that was passed down through generations of how you do and you don't treat people. And so when you come to the law, you find that those kind of values are actually then legislated in terms of how the nation of Israel is supposed to operate and how they interact with each other as members of the covenant community. So it's, yeah. it's specified in terms of, you know, what the judges do or how you treat the foreigner or how you treat the widow and, and, and even provide proactively for the poor to give them their due in the sense that they're a member of this community. And in a sense, you owe it to them to have some kind of mechanism for them to find a way to survive when they face overwhelming circumstances. So, so that's a picture of society. All right, I think you had an interesting way you worded So what is God looking for in society? So Correct. How is, how is justice defined in society? And you're framing this with the, right now within the context of the Old Testament. That's correct, right. Okay, so you want to expound anything sure, else sure. on that? Well, there are two words, two Hebrew words. One's the word mishpat, one's the word sedek or sedekah. One is usually translated uh, justice, uh, and one is righteousness. And they work together to convey this idea that, you know, this is a little simplistic, but of giving people their due Mm -hmm. and treating them with the kind of respect and fairness that you owe to them as people made in the image of God. 
Now, right, in, let's talk about this. Wouldn't, sure. you, wouldn't you say one of the root issues is, one of the foundational issues is, every man is made in the image of God. That's correct. Regardless of race, socioeconomic, race, right. Yeah, anything. Exactly. Right, so wouldn't you say that's a foundational stone we have to build off of? Absolutely. That, I mean, that is the first thing that okay. the Bible would say right. that relates to this topic is in Genesis chapter 1. It's just that foundational okay. anthropology that all these other things right. are building on as to okay. what that looks like and how you treat people. Okay, so keep going. So, I, I interrupted you. But sure, sure. Story, I wanted no. to, just to make sure we got that. Yeah, so that those terms, Mishpat and Sedekah, it's a little simplistic, but it's the idea of treating people in whatever relationship you have to be, and most of it has to do with the covenant relationship in Israel. All right, so Get, define covenant for our listeners that may not know what a covenant is. I mean, I know there are a couple of different types. But, sure, sure. Uh, That's a word that just refers to a formally binding agreement okay. whereby two or more parties are bound to each other with stated obligations toward each other. And so God set up, he himself made a covenant with the nation Israel, and that bound everybody in that nation to each other with certain obligations to each other. And that doesn't mean that every little detail of Israel's structure has to be brought over in every respect. But there is this idea of when you live, particularly when you live in proximity with people as a part of the same community, you have certain obligations to each other and, and, and Mishpat and Sedekah are among those. And those two words are justice? Right. And righteousness. And righteousness. Okay. That's correct. So we could trace that through the laws and then through historical examples where people either are doing that or they aren't doing that. But to me, one of the fascinating things of looking at this was when you get to the prophets, they're not preaching only to Israel about violating the covenant. There's plenty of that. But they're actually preaching as well to the pagan nations about having violated certain basic things, most of which have to do with this category of justice in society. So the way that they oppressed uh, disadvantaged people, their abusiveness toward their enemies, just fundamental moral slash judicial issues. And the prophets just go after these pagans and they announced just these horrendous judgments against them, even though they never had the law, per se. And what that means is that God, God has standards even for Gentile nations. And so apart from issues of the mission of the church, we are citizens in some kind of kingdom on earth, some kind of nation, and God has standards for, for what he expects there. Regardless and, of believer, unbeliever. Exactly, okay. exactly. Right. right. So anything else on the theology of justice you want to bring in? And then we'll segue into some practical ways this may affect the church. Any other building blocks there that would help us? Well, I, I would put emphasis on those oracles against the nations. In fact, I remember preaching on that. Can you think of a specific example? Well, read the book of Amos, the first couple okay. of chapters, right. for example. Amos 1 and 2. Yeah. And, and then when you come to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them have major sections that are these oracles against the nations. And I remember preaching on that on, I think it was the 4th of July several years ago, to try to help people understand that, you know, normally at church we're talking about, you know, sort of your personal discipleship and spiritual life and your own family maybe, your walk with the Lord. 
But the Bible actually has a lot to say when it comes to your life and society, and, and that, that deserves to be preached and applied today as a part of addressing the kinds of concerns that, that we're dealing with. All right, so as a pastor, and then we'll come to Pastor Cook, and you're an Old Testament guy, right. okay? So to other pastors that are listening, and they just wanted to start researching this to preach this. Sure. Where, where would you tell them to start? Is there, is there a particular reference you would go to as far as a commentary or a book or just dig into Scripture? Where would, a, where would a guy even start to research this to preach it to his church? Sure. Well, I think there's a lot you could do from Genesis chapter 1 on the image of God. And just to give one little example, something that, I, that I've started to do, I don't do it every year, but, you know, normally... In January, the third Sunday, a lot of churches celebrate right to life mm-hmm. or sanctity of life right. to to uh, push back against the Roe v. Wade anniversary and that sort of thing. So it's our opportunity to talk about the value of life and how evil abortion is. Well, at the same time of the year, you also have the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. And what, what hit me a while ago is those two issues are really about the same thing. Mm. It's the value of unborn life, or it's the value of life regardless of ethnic differences. So what, what I started to do is take that third Sunday, and I said, we're going to have an image of God Sunday mm-hmm. to try to make this point that the sorts of things that conservatives tend to be concerned about and this issue that more progressive people tend to be associated with theologically they're actually about the same issue and we're trying to shed the light of scripture on both of them and really tie them together in a way that addresses both concerns and probably also corrects the thinking on on both sides so genesis 1 is huge um of course genesis 6 you've got god's perfect justice right right or judgment being declared exactly and a lot of that is because it says the earth was filled with violence right and so there was a huge social dimension to the judgment that came through the flood. Mm. Uh, so that would be that would be part of it. I think just doing word study on Mishpat and Zedekah, okay. and trying to tie those together with specific examples okay. through through the scriptures okay. would be good. Okay. And then in the New Testament, one of the texts that comes to mind is really the whole book of First Peter, which is about how are quote unquote Christian exiles to live in this world. And the fact that, you know, we live in the world, but the world rejects us because we're, we're living for Christ and opposing their values in many ways. And, you know, the, the book is an interesting mix of saying there are ways you've got to be different, mm-hmm. uh, but there are other ways that you need to try to fit in and just show an honorable, supportive, compassionate character in this society as a way of okay. pointing them to the gospel. So. So First Peter has got a lot that could contribute to that as well. All right. Pastor yeah. Cook, let me go back to you. So you minister and in, in, you preach. I mean, you minister both at seminary level and local mm-hmm. church. But your local church ministry is uh, really in the city where Clemson University is. That's right. So we've got a lot of thinking that doesn't have a biblical worldview. So what would be some warning signs that if the wrong view of justice is being brought into the church, what would that look like that, you, that would alarm you, or maybe that's not a fair question, what would that look like, um, an unbiblical view of justice, what would that look like if it started to rise up in the church? Oh, that's a fair question. Um, 
I mean, it lo- it, what, it, what it looks like probably in popular culture is people getting really attached to memes on Facebook, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, little pithy sayings and this kind of thing without a lot of depth of thinking. Okay. And uh, at our own church this summer, with everything going on in the inner cities and all these questions that have arisen, I've just taken the opportunity to suspend the preaching that I was doing to the Book of Romans and just deal with it, just take it head on. And the name of that top, the sermon series was what? Seek, seek the is. welfare of the city, based right. on Jeremiah 29. And I find that people will be very interested in what's going on, and if pastors sort of avoid it or are afraid of it, they're going to go looking for answers somewhere else. Yeah. So you'd better address it. You better just go ahead and so take it off. if I remember right, we were going through the Book of Romans on Sunday morning. That's we right. suspended that. Right and brought in this series for the summer to address the right. chaos. What's going on in our cities. Yeah. Okay, good. And the point was really to basically do two things. What does the Bible say about racism and ethnicity and so forth? And um, has the church been an error? Have we made mistakes in our thinking? Rather than just jump into conclusions, have we made mistakes in the past? Mm-hmm. Because the fact is we will make mistakes in the future, but we don't want to compound those mistakes by repeating the mistakes of the past. That's what church history does for you. It allows you to go back and say, let's not do this a second time or a third time. Okay. So that, it's been a very interesting study for us, I think. A passage that I was thinking as Ken was talking was Acts 17. Mm-hmm. We're all of one blood. Yeah which means that the origin of all racial strife and is all brother against brother in the end. George which is the result right. of Adam's sin. Right, it goes back to Genesis. Yeah. So you mean, you got Derek Chauvin, the police officer, you've got George Floyd. This, this is Cain and Abel all over again. Yeah. This has been going on through all human history. It's, it's, yeah, the skin color is different, but I'm told by biologists that we're 99.9% similar. Right. It's brother against brother, and we have to think about it from that perspective. And this is not new. This is not new. A, a passage that I've been thinking about recently uh, is Jonah. I mean, talk about a guy who hates, just hates, you know, the Ninevites, another ethnicity. I mean, he's running from the presence of God. He becomes a suicide. You know, I don't want anything to do with those Ninevites. And, you know, I, so can, you're can, saying he had a hatred against the Ninevites. Yeah. That's what, that was, I, I mean, I agree with you. But just, he, that's what was driving him to run away from God's will for his life. Yes, yeah. and it ends up, he, and Ken's here to correct me, he's the Old Testament guy, but he ends up taking, he has a perverse view of God's attributes. I mean, he cannot That's allow right. for God's mercy to be compatible with God's justice. I mean, he sees it one side. It's just about, it's just God's judgment, I should say. He wants, he wants none of a judge, and the idea that God could show mercy on an, on an inner city is unthinkable to him. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I, 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 I don't know, th- so Ken, I'm this off the cuff. About how many people were in Nineveh at this time? Well, didn't he say uh, 120,000? Yes, 120,000. And he even mentions the animals, you know. Okay. So this is a large city. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he wants judgment. That's correct. And God wants his message of mercy. Right. Okay. Perfect. And it's the shortest, I mean, Jonah's the shortest prophecy in the Bible. When you look at what's eight words, you know, repent or you're going to be destroyed. Right. 40 days. Yeah. Right. I mean, Jonah's about the messenger more than the message. And the messenger's Mm. got it all wrong. Yeah. And I'm just concerned that you think, maybe, wait a minute, you think that's true as well today? The problem's more with the messenger than the message as far as us pastors not maybe declaring or, or preaching this right. idea properly? Is that, is that, well, I'm be hard on the pastors, but. Well, I, I, I think the issue is if we look at the images okay. of what's going on in the inner cities, right? What emotions come to mind? I mean, I see police cars burning. I see, you know. No, we're recording this in August of 2020. Okay, right. Just for the context. Right. Okay. I mean, you look at Minneapolis, you look at Atlanta, you look at Seattle. 
um, these images of businesses being looted and people are running, just creating havoc. It's there's there's a there's a side of me that just becomes angry and that just cries out for justice. Uh, there's a side of me that's cynical. There's a side of me that sympathizes with Jonah when he's looking at Nineveh and he says, this thing just needs to be destroyed. But mm. that, that's not the whole picture. Right. I have to look into the inner city with the eyes of Christ and say, okay, these people need mercy. These people, there's a long history here that I may not even understand. And these are image bearers of God. We have to teach our people to think correctly about them. I like the old, to go way back in history, I like the old Byzantine paintings of Christ. If you look at the early Byzantine art, 5th century, they would paint Jesus with different eyes deliberately. Mm. And one eye was always narrow and, and, and fierce. It just it burns right through you. That's the judgment side of things. And then there was this open side of Christ's face where you can just see him weeping over Jerusalem. Mm. And it's those two eyes that you have to have. You have to look into the city with the sense of justice, right? But also compassion right. for these people that just do not understand the gospel. And I think that's what Jonah was missing. Mm. He, had, he just had the one eye. You have to have the both eyes looking at this through the eyes of Christ. Mm. Well said. Mm. So as we wrap this up, Dr. Casillas, anything else you want to, from the theological Old Testament side or from the pastoral side, any just general comments? Sure. From, from the pastoral side, going back to your question earlier, I think maybe the biggest thing that keeps us from developing these themes is the fear that we're going to get sucked into unbiblical progressive ideologies or be associated with them okay and so we're quiet sometimes because we don't want to get lumped into this bucket of people that have all of these you know marxist leaning or whatever perspectives and i think we we often have done ourselves a disservice out of fear and have not spoken the whole counsel of God on a very important issue. And so it takes, it takes boldness, it takes discernment to, to get the message out with the right balance right. of, okay, here is justice, here's how this should look, here's how we ought to be responding, here's where this other you know, ideology has gone astray. But these events are really forcing us to, to really have to say something. Sure. We cannot be silent any longer. So. Is there any other comment you would have, Pastor Cook? Yeah, I, and my situation may be a little bit unique, and Pastor near Clemson, but there is the mission of the church, but as a pastor, you're also ministering to people who have a vocation. That's right. Yeah. Right, and so we have a sociologist in our church, a sociology professor, we have political scientists in our church, and for them, you know, there's the mission of the church, what we're trying to accomplish, say, on Sunday and with our missions money and so right. forth. But as a pastor, I feel like we need to help them think about their discipline, their vocation, their calling. What does this mean for me as a sociologist? What does it mean for me as a politician? Uh, what does it mean for me when I teach my students in political science? You've got to keep them at arm's length in a sense so that you don't get the church enamored or you know, compromised with social justice issues. But at the same time, you've got to address you, it. You've got to address it from a vocational yeah. standpoint. And I think both theologically and historically, we as pastors have got to understand you know, understand what's going on in our communities and in our culture, mm -hmm. and then impose the Word of God on that. That's Is that right. fair way to say it? Sure, sure. Okay. Dr. Casillas, any closing comments? Well, this is a little bit of a separate topic, but Brent was mentioning memes. I think social media, mm -hmm. um, in many cases, believers are hurting the cause by emphasizing the wrong kinds of messages at certain times. And so when somebody looks at your feed 
And what they see is, you know, I'm all about America and I'm all about guns and I'm all about these sort of constitutional things over against this other side. There really is a distortion of what the biblical emphasis is. We ought to be known for love. We ought to be known for justice. These are biblical things, kindness. And sometimes out of our overemphasis on our American identity, we lose a huge scriptural principle that could really be a powerful testimony in a time like this. Well said. Pastor Cook, last word. Yeah, if I could just build on that, I think this is an election year, as you know, and everything's polarized. You got binary options, you know. You're either pro-Trump or pro-Biden, and it's either make America great again or you hate America. Right. And you can't be nuanced out there in social media. It's one way or the other. And, you know, I, I can be sympathetic with some aspects of Make America Great Again, no question. But, you know, to, to hear that through the perspective of, of a Native American, it, does, it means something very different. Oh. Yeah. Or a, a black person who's, you know, not so very long ago experienced segregation, even in the church, in the 60s, in the 60s, uh, in the South in particular, churches banned African Americans. Uh, they, they staged what were called kneel-ins. They would come and kneel in front of the church and pray that one day God would open the doors to to these people. So some people, when you say, make America great again, they're saying, are we going to go back to that? Does that mean we're going to go back to where I can't come into a white church any longer? So again, we've got to be very, very careful with the message that we put out there because people are going to hear it very differently Mm -hmm. uh, from different perspectives. So the message, and as Pastor Casilla said, also the way that message is carried out. That's right. Exactly. As we preach this message. Guys, thank you very much. Again, Dr. Ken Casillas, thank you. Dr. Brent Cook, thank you. It's been a privilege having you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You're listening to ReChurch, a podcast of Gospel Fellowship Association Missions. If you would like more information about our ministry or how we may assist you and your church, visit us at gfamissions.org slash consulting.